welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Well, we've been moving through a, a series, as we often do, in what's known as Holy Week around the world, beginning with Palm Sunday last Sunday. The series bears a simple title, Easter Answers. Easter Answers to uh, remind us who, who know the Scriptures fairly well about the great depth of what He did for us and to open the truth of Christ's passion and resurrection to you who may be new or exploring the Christian faith, I'm delighted to welcome both, uh, both uh, listeners to, to this service today. Easter Answers is simply designed to answer three great questions about the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. We began last Sunday, Palm Sunday, which of course is known by the church to celebrate the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem for the final week of his life and the great work of his life, the cross work. And we asked the question, why did he come? Jesus answered that in John 12. He answered it by saying the Father was going to be glorified in all that he would do in those days and in his death, as the Father had never been glorified before. So he came to glorify the Father and to carry out a great plan. This past uh, Good Friday evening, many of you were gathered here and we celebrated and commemorated the suffering of Christ. And the question was asked, why did Jesus die? Many people look at that as the most unjust death in human history. And in a certain way, from man's point of view, they're right. But it was a necessary death from God's point of view. And why did Jesus die? And we concluded that he died because that sacred head, as the hymn writer said, needed to be wounded in our place. We deserved the sting of God's wrath for the depth of our sin, and Jesus took that upon himself. We're going to explore that even more today. But he came to this great work to glorify the Father on Palm Sunday. He bowed his head on the cross because he allowed himself to be wounded with God's punishment for our sin on Good Friday. And now we come to Ascension Day, Resurrection Day, and we ask the question, why did Jesus rise Many people have many answers to this, simply to defeat the physics of physical death. That's what many of us think. That was the reason. While he was physically dead, he needed to be physically brought back to life, if you will, so he could ascend and go on. And that's partially, that is a partial answer. But there are so many other spiritual meanings and reasons as to why he rose And I want to bring you into one that you may not have really learned as a Christian or you may not have thought of because it's not often mentioned in the Scriptures. But the answer I want to bring to you today among the many reasons that Jesus rose was He rose so that God the Father could affirm His sacrifice. He rose so that God the Father could make a statement about what Jesus had done to the universe at large, and to those that would trust in him. Now, I want to explain this by by covering two 
main ideas in, in my teaching today. The first is I want to spend a little time talking about what I would call the resurrection connection. So many of us look at the crucifixion of Christ in those deadly hours on Calvary to the point where he called out, it is finished, as one work of Christ, and indeed, in a certain sense, it was, but we don't connect it to the resurrection. We think the resurrection is something that happens separately and later, and we're right about that chronologically, but there is a great connection that the scripture makes between the two. And I want to explore that with you. The resurrection connection is the first thing I want to talk about. And after making that connection, then I want to go through what I would simply call the resurrection explanation. What did the rising of Jesus from the dead focus on God affirming and God uh, approving? So stick with me. And I believe the scriptures are going to reveal something precious. This has always been precious to me. The resurrection-crucifixion connection is found in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, and I, and I don't think you'll see it on the screen, but Romans chapter 4 you will, but in Romans 1, and I got to this late, so I didn't give it to our, our folks, but in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was something that the, the Father declared His approval over. He declared that Jesus was truly His Son when He raised Him from the dead. Now go to the text that I did read to you. You will see it on the screen. Romans chapter 4. And in verses 23 and 24, the scripture says, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Speaking there about Abraham, a man of the ancient past in Israel, who looked forward to the death of a savior for him who would take away his sins and to whom would, and therefore would grant him righteousness in the sight of God, perfection in the sight of God. So he wouldn't be condemned to hell, but he would be welcomed into heaven. Abraham knew that was going to come because of what a Messiah would do. That Messiah was the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was looking ahead to that in history. But we, in verse 24, also have the privilege, if we look, if we trust Christ for who he is as Savior and the one that took the penalty for our sins, we can be declared righteous too in God's eyes and we can be welcomed into heaven. So this counting to him of righteousness in, in verse 23 is also something that happens when you become a Christian. And he says, it is ours also, verse 24, counted to us who believe in him, look at this, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. There's the resurrection, right? You see it? Je Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Father. Now look at the final verse, verse 25. Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In that last sentence, you see both of the events I'm talking about today. In the first phrase, delivered up for our trespasses, you see the crucifixion. Isn't that right? That's where he was delivered up for my trespasses on that cross. But the last phrase is the resurrection and raised up for our justification. Now you see those two things joined together, and then look at the last word, justification. What that means is that by Christ's crucifixion and affirmed by the resurrection, you and I can be justified now in the sight of God. 
He can look at us as though we have no sin. In fact, he can see us as having the perfections of Jesus. And that's how you and I will enter heaven. All of that was accomplished by both parts of verse 25, the crucifixion for the payment and the resurrection where God declared it was sufficient for him. And I want to move through that. Let me just read to you one a theologian that I, I, I was um, working through this week and his description. In this passage in Romans 4.25, when Christ was raised from the dead, it was God the Father's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. God's the declaration of approval because Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, as Gene read to us earlier. God has highly exalted him. So there you see the cross and the resurrection. By raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins, that his Christ, that Christ's work was completed and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. And so there's a very important connection here, the, the resurrection connection. What he did on the cross was approved and validated by the Father. Now, the Father affirmed it and you could say it, you could put it this way. When the resurrection happened, God the Father affirmed the greatest thing Jesus ever did. Now, what was the greatest thing Jesus ever did? Well, I always like to connect it to the greatest thing Jesus ever said. Now, right now you may be saying, well, hold on a second. I'm a little fearful. This could be a, a, a very long message because Jesus said a lot of things. And every one of them was compelling, right? I mean, it's been said that some people have a way with words. That's the master of all understatements with Jesus of Nazareth. He was the master who was bringing perfect words from the throne room of heaven. He was God in a body. Every time Jesus spoke, people heard unfiltered, unvarnished, white hot at times, or full of comfort at other times, truth from the very presence of God, because he is God. And so how do you pick and sort between all the things that Jesus said to find the greatest thing he ever said, well, I'm going to take a, an attempt at it. This is my bias. I mean, he did say things that kept people spellbound for hours on hillsides till they, they forgot they were hungry, right? There were people, his own enemies, who went to arrest him and who came back saying, we couldn't touch him. Why? Because no man has ever spoken like this man speaks. So with all the power and authority that he had in the words that he taught, what do you choose as the greatest things he ever said? The greatest one statement. I mean, he talked about many things. He declared that he was an eternal God when he looked at the Jews and said, before Abraham was ever born, I am. In other words, I'm eternal God. I'm back in history right now. <laughs> he declared he was eternal. That's weighty. Then when, when uh, the disciples were looking at him in the upper room in their distress, he looked at Philip, I believe, and said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. What was he saying there? I'm God in human flesh. Everything you've heard from me is spoken as God. So how do you top these great declarations when Jesus, again, when they were troubled about the future, said, you know, don't be troubled. I'm going to go away and then I will come again and receive you into myself. Jesus was saying, not only am I the master of the past, but I'm the conqueror of the future and of death. I will die. I will, I will go into the future, but then I'll return. 
I'll take you to myself. How do you, how do you top the time spanning Christ? And then how do you top the one who can make justice out of your rebellion when he said in John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, if you believe on me, you have everlasting life. Which do you choose as the most life-changing? Well, you really can't, but I've always believed, and I've told you this before, that one statement that Jesus made, almost at the the very last statement he made at the end of his life, could be called the greatest thing he ever said. Because when he said it, he put power to everything else he had promised. What is the greatest thing that Jesus ever said? And what was the thing that the Father affirmed on Resurrection Day? It's back in that Gospel of John passage, John chapter 19. Go there, and we're going to spend a little time. When Jesus had received that that sour wine, that vinegar, and that sponge, in John 19.30, Jesus said three words in our English. It is finished. I'm going to argue, as I have throughout my preaching life, that those are the most important words Jesus ever said. Because by saying them and because of the achievement that allowed him to say it, taking the wrath of God for my sin, he enabled the fulfillment of every other promise he ever made. He conquered death and he's going to welcome you home because he said it is finished. So there is a connection between the resurrection and the crucifixion. And I want to make the balance of my message then what I would call next the resurrection explanation, and I want to do it by doing two things. I want to answer two questions, as I often do, because I go to the Bible with questions. That's how I study it. And uh, I'm going to answer two questions that I've found that were on my mind. When Jesus said, it is finished, the first question I'm going to answer is, what did Jesus finish? Remember, this was said at the end of his life. It, 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 it shines back on everything he ever did. Now, what it, is it that he finished in that moment among the many deeds of his life? And secondly, why does it matter? So now let's go into this explanation of what the Father on Resurrection Sunday affirmed and said, I accept this. Why does it open heaven for you? So the, the, the first question under this explanation is, what did Jesus finish when he said, it is finished in John 19.30? What was he speaking of? I said it's uh, three rich words in English. It's one word in the Greek, the Koine Greek language that the Holy Spirit used to write the original text of Scripture, the manuscripts. Greek is an amazing language. English is a rather clumsy language, um, unimaginative in many ways compared to others. Greek was a, a language of degrees. Went, in other words, the Koine Greek of the time in which the Romans lived and, 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 and uh, John's readers spoke Koine Greek, Greek was a language of, of uh, 
different crafting of words. The same word could have different impacts and meanings in different contexts. One word had a lot of riches in it, and it's why it's so thrilling to me that God took his, his inexhaustible word and he gave it to us in maybe the most uh, full language structure that ever has been invented. That's just my opinion. So let's, let's, let's hear a little bit about the Greek word. Is one Greek word for our three. It is finished in English is one Greek word, tetelestai. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've heard it preached over. I hope you have if you've been fortunate. It is ex- intensely expressive. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, in his study of this, uh, talked about some of the meanings that have been uncovered and the ways that the word tetelestai, or the phrase it is finished, was used in society at the time of Jesus. The way it was used in the lives of the people that originally read this as John wrote it. There were three predominant ways the words it is finished and the Greek word tetelestai was used at that time. First, it was used as a servant's word, and that was one of the most common ways it was used because it meant the the task you've given me is completed. Now, Rome was a a slave society and a servant society. It's been estimated that a, a large number of the people in Roman society were servants. They worked in some servant capacity to to a master. And when a servant was given an assignment by the master of the house, He worked at that, and when he was finished, he would come into his master's presence, and he would say, Master, tetelestai. It's all done. I completed that task. Tetelestai. When a task had been completed. He also said that uh, there was uh, another way that it was used, and that was, as a a debtor's word in the world of finance, when you owed money on a on some the money you uh, on, on something you'd borrowed, you were a, a debtor to a creditor, and the day you came in with your last payment, you ever done that? You know, way back in the day, you could even bring it in in person. That doesn't happen anymore. They just sweep it out your account. You never know now, but. You know what it's like to make the final payment on something, on a car, for example? In that society, when you made your final payment, you visited your creditor, and he had the list of all your payments and the balance owed, and you brought in your final payment, and uh, he would write to Telestai across the, the billing statement. Completed, paid in full is what it really meant in that society. Paid in full. In fact, archaeologists some time ago uncovered some places in modern-day Israel where they uncovered an ancient business office, and there were stacks and stacks of uh, these uh, tablets. They were little thin clay tablets. That's what they used these in ancient times that, that would carry your debt. And tablet after tablet after tablet had inscribed across the face of it to telestai, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. So it was a servant's word when a task had been completed. It was a creditor's word or a debtor's word when an account had been paid in full. The debt was paid. And then the last, 
of the three major ways it was used. It was an artist's word. It was, it was used when an artist had put the final touches on a beautiful piece of pottery or a ceramic, for example. And the artist would kind of stand back and look at every curve and every dimension of color. And he would say to himself, or she'd say to herself, to tell us die. Perfect. Completed. Nothing more I want to do. It's, it's a masterpiece. Now I want you to bear those in mind. Because as I've studied the scriptures... Each quality of the word to tell us I could be said to be reflected in what Jesus did that day and what the Father affirmed on Resurrection Day. What did Jesus finish is my question to you, and I have three answers. First, he finished suffering the deep pain of salvation. And we explored this somewhat on Friday night. It was explored again in our in our worship today, he finished suffering the deep pain of salvation. Make no mistake about it, Jesus suffered physical agony and he went through physical death on that hillside. This is why Philippians 2 was read for us. Philippians 2, as Gene read it, talked about the entire stretch of experience that the perfect Son of God voluntarily went through for me, for you. Though he was in the form of God, Philippians 2.6 says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't stay in the, the hallways of heaven as the, as the eternally adored son of God. But he came to earth. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And his one destination was the cross and that hillside. In those hours, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I, I look at the, the, the phrase becoming obedient was where he humbled himself to all the suffering and the aggravation and the limitations of human life, though he did not need to. He did it to satisfy the will of the Father. And then he submitted himself to death. And I've already demonstrated to you that there's dying, and then there's dying on a cross. And there is a world of deep difference to dying on a cross. But the Romans, as you already know, made even the pathway to dying a dying. And so Christ's dying experience began when he was mocked by the, by the soldiers in the midst of his sham trials and beaten by the high priests and others. After his shameful condemnation by Pilate, he was scourged to within an inch of his life, the skin and ribbons on his back by the Roman lictors. Crowned with a crown of thorns, slowly pushed down upon the capillaries of his head. Spat upon as he carried the cross through the Via Dolorosa. I watched last night a, an image and a, and a, a virtual tour, if you will, of each of the points where all this was happened, I was overwhelmed with gratitude to him. Along the way, his beard was plucked out, and he allowed it to happen to fulfill even the minute prophecies of Isaiah. Arriving at the cross, he was stripped and nailed, and then the real pain started of the hours of the cross's 
cruelly designed agonies. In all of that, he walked through it all and suffered every ounce of it. The scripture says that we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, Isaiah 53, 4. And a lot of the affliction was the agonies, the physical agonies he went through as the sacrifice. It's interesting. There are two places where Jesus, uh, well, one, one where he was offered wine just before they nailed him to the cross. This was a common thing they did in crucifixion to try and calm the victim down. And they mixed it with gall, which was a spice that was also a deep anesthetic and a numbing substance that would take quick effect to make the nailing less painful and the early hours of the cross, something that people would survive. And it's interesting in Matthew 27, when they offered that to Jesus, what did he do? Did he say yes or did he refuse it? He refused it because he knew that the Father required for him to walk through the hell of the crucifixion with his eyes open and with his mind clear. He was going to take it all for you and for me. And he did. Now here in our text at the very end, at the very end it says that he finally did say in verse 28, I thirst. So why here does he ask for something? Why did he not there? They find a, a jar full of sour wine. We'd almost call it like vinegar today, sitting there near the cross. And they dipped a sponge in it and stuck it on the end of a hyssop branch and brought it up to his lips. And he, he received the sour wine out of that sponge. Now, why did he do that? This is my conjecture, but I, I my opinion... He did it to clear his throat because he wanted to say the greatest words he would ever say. Because it says, when he had received the sour wine, verse 30, he said, it is finished. Now, it's important for you to know that when Jesus said it is finished, he did not say it the way you might imagine, as, a, as an exhausted possibly demoralized, deeply weakened man at the end of a terrible ordeal. He didn't say, it is finished. The text seems to indicate, the synoptic gospel writers say, he said it in a loud cry. Don't you forget that. And it's in the perfect tense. In other words, he says, it's finished and it's never going to have to be done again. Why did Jesus ask for the vinegar to clear his throat so that he could give a full shout to the universe that his cross work was finished for you and for me? I don't think Jesus went through the agonies of the cross with slumped shoulders. I think as much as he could, he had his chest out and he had his will on. And he went through it as the mighty son of God for me. That's just my impression of that text. You think about it. Why did Jesus die and what did he finish? First of all, he finished suffering the deep pain of salvation. In other words, you could simply say, as Wearsby said, that Christ had a work to complete for you and me. He had to suffer fully, physically for me. 
And then he had to enter into physical death and shed his blood for me. And at that moment, Jesus is like a servant coming before his master saying, Master, it is finished. I've finished my work for you and for them. Second, I think he also finished paying the great price of salvation. There was physical suffering leading ultimately to death and the shedding of blood. But those physical agonies, as much as they may disturb what I disturb you and what I just said, pale in significance to the supernatural suffering he also went through. Isaiah 53 talks about this in verse 8. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, speaking about the very physical piercing of his body through crucifixion. But then it says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What's that all about? What's the chastisement? Chastisement is punishment. Who was punishing God the Son? This may blow your mind. God the Father. Because Jesus had to take the wrath that I was supposed to take. And so you can look at the word chastisement, and I would look at that as describing the wrath of the Father. It was brought down upon him by the Father in the dark three hours of the cross. And it was so satisfied by Jesus that he took every ounce of that wrath that it brought us peace. Peace, not in your emotions. Peace between you and a God who held your sin against you who was not at peace with you. He's a just and holy God. You and I are unjust, wicked people, every single one of us. And we could not have a relationship with that wonderful of God. But Jesus took the wrath that we were due, and it was exhausted. So now there's nothing between you and the Father if you accept what Jesus brought. And so in that great way, he satisfied and paid the great price. What was the price? Absorbing the wrath of God, the penalty for sin, what I owed. Now take the phrase I owed, and we take it back to the second image that I told you about. To Telestai was a debtor's word and a creditor's word. If you came in and your debt was paid, let's say somebody got to the office before you did, and you didn't have the money to finish paying your debt, but somebody paid it for you, and you show up, and the creditor looks at you and says, I'm sorry, there's no balance owed here to Telestai. Somebody paid it for you. That's what happened on Calvary. Jesus said, Father, it's paid for. I, I paid everything. I know after these hours of darkness that there's not one ounce of your wrath left for me to take. I paid it all. Oh, what a mighty Savior he is. Pain. Blood shed. Wrath absorbed. And here's the last. I think when he said it is finished, he, he was saying he had finished fulfilling the great plan of salvation. You see, as I mentioned on Palm Sunday, Jesus came to glorify the Father and to bring to its perfect conclusion a plan that the Father had created to save you before time began. And nothing can glorify the Father more than the greatness of that plan of grace. And when Jesus died, I believe he was finishing something that was authored before time began. 
and that he had submitted to for you. Now you have to understand that all of Bible history was moving toward this moment. And that's why I, say, I, th- I tell you again, it's the greatest thing you ever said because it allowed all of the Bible's history to move to fulfillment. Think about your Bible. Jesus was finishing a work that had begun before the world was ever formed. Revelation 13.8 says that your name was written in the book of life, of salvation, before the foundation of the world. God's plan for you was authored before you were you. <laughs> before anything was anything. And so from the beginning of time, his plan has been moving in our frame we call time. He had always planned to send his son to die for sinners. And in the very beginning, he began to show shadows of that plan. When Adam and Eve fell in sin, what did he do? When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, God took a life. He sacrificed an innocent animal to cover their nakedness, didn't he? That was a symbol, a shadow of the sacrifice that would ultimately be made by the perfect Lamb of God. When Adam and Eve realized realized in depth as God pronounced his judgment over them and over Satan for all that had happened, Satan's deception, Eve's deceptions, Adam's walking into sin and everything else, and the absolute moral disaster that they had authored in it all, there was no hope in their minds that this could ever be undone. And then God in his wonderful kindness in Genesis 3.15 says, oh, there is going to come a one who will crush the head of this wicked spiritual enemy, Satan himself, and who will undo all of this. So you see, in the very beginnings of the biblical narrative, in the beginnings of God's dealing with man, there were shadows, promises to Adam and Eve. And then soon the offerings were laid in place. It began with, with in Genesis 4, when Abel brought a lamb to be offered. In my opinion, I think that's very, some people differ. I think that's very important because he was already under instruction, probably from Adam and Eve or maybe from God himself about the nature of a sacrifice that you not need to start bringing to God is an innocent and blameless animal. Blood needs to be shed and that blood will temporarily cover your sin and allow you to to uh walk with me if you will so that all started and then that all started the the offerings and the sacrifices that israel was instructed to have when did that start in exodus 12 when the children of israel were told when i rescue you out of egypt you need to take a, a perfect little lamb a passover lamb and you're to take that lamb's life and you're to spill its blood and you're to put it on the doorways of your houses and when i see the blood i will what pass over you It was a temporary covering, a way for God to not bring his wrath down on their sin. And that was something they were to perpetuate. Later on was added the Day of Atonement, when lambs were killed to make atonement for the people throughout the year. A river of blood shed for thousands of years, all as a symbol of the fact that there was a perfect lamb coming. It was all the plan of God. Now, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, that all those sacrifices could never take away sins. They could simply roll the sins of the person offering that sacrifice ahead for a period of time. It withheld the judgment of God 
because the person offering the sacrifice did so in the knowledge that a more complete sacrifice was coming one day. So those Old Testament believers, you know, they were saved by faith, just like people are saved today. They were saved by looking forward to a a, a Lamb of God that would come, a promised Messiah who would die for their sins. Today, we're saved by looking back, aren't we? to the Lamb of God, to the promised Messiah, who did come through Jerusalem, through the gates, and who did go to the cross, and who did die for sins. So you can see the whole biblical plan here, moving around this great event. Now those Old Testament sacrifices did nothing to ultimately remove the sins of the people, but the Jesus The the sacrifice of Jesus did everything to deal with the sin issue. John looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus said it is finished, the sacrifice was finished, the time-changing one. And when he said it in in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 10 to 14, give us this this, uh, passage here. It's important. Verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which you can never take away sins. I just explained that. That's the Old Testament practice to show us that a great sacrifice was coming. And when the great sacrifice came, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. When did he do that? When he said, it is finished. The whole plan moved into perfect place. And your salvation was achieved. And then when Jesus rose, God the Father welcomed him back into the throne room and he sat down at the right hand of God. You've probably heard it taught that in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, when the priests would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to bring blood for the people to cover their sins and carry it forward, if you will, one more year, there were no chairs in that part of the temple. No priest was ever allowed to sit down because when you sat down, it was a symbol that your work was accomplished. It was never accomplished until Jesus came and he said, it is finished. And when he ascended into heaven, the father brought him into his presence and he said, sit down at my right hand. Why? Because Hebrews tells us the work was done. You may be laboring under a religion today that says you have to do this and that to add to whatever Jesus did. My friend, it's been done. It's not what you do, it's what he did. It's not what you're trying to figure out if you can can do enough of to, to somehow be allowed into eternity with God. It's the fact that he said it is finished. Hebrews 10 goes on, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He's waiting now for the Father to put all the nations under his feet in the coming kingdom. And look at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How much did Jesus need to die for you until it was finished? A single offering. It is finished. It's all sufficient for you. I hope the word of God is beginning to dawn on your heart and your life. This is why I think, in a way, you could take the word to telestai. This is just my preacher's perspective. And you could say when Jesus called out, it is finished. In a way, he was like an artist. And his final breath and the final ounce of God's wrath finished that masterpiece of salvation. 
the final touch. And he could say, Father, I've finished what you designed. I've finished the masterpiece of our greatest work. And now, when I rise, I'm going to start to draw them in. This is what Jesus did. Why did Jesus die? Well, he died to finish a work. What was that work? The deep pain of salvation for you, paying the great price of salvation for you, and fulfilling the great plan of salvation for you. That's the last. Well, here's my final question. Why does that matter? Is this just of interest to people that are unusually theological? No. This is the whole essence of how you can have a relationship with God today. It means two things. First of all, it means we don't have to work for our salvation. It's impossible to do a work that's already been completed. He said, it's finished. And that's good news. That's good news for people like you and me because uh, according to the Bible, here's a news flash for you, you could never be good enough to get to God. Some of you guys really need to hear that because some of you came in here thinking, nah, I could probably be good enough. No. Only he can convict you of that. None of us is good enough to get to God. The Bible plainly tells us the best we can do is like filthy rags in the sight of God. The prophet Isaiah in 64. The scripture tells us that there is no goodness in us whatsoever. Read Romans chapter 3 sometime. It'll devastate your self-esteem, which in my opinion would probably be a good thing. There is no goodness in us. At our best, we're ranked sinners, but Jesus somehow satisfied the Father, and because of that, I don't have to. If I'm in Him, then the Father accepts Christ's atoning death for me, and I simply need to see my sin for what it is, and Him for the Savior that He is, and come to Him. So, you know, if, if you're still coming to God with your religion, your added effort, your personal plan to finish making yourself acceptable to God, to ride the rails of the possibility that you've got to earn it, that he might have given you a good start, but you've got to finish. You can take your religion and drop it at the foot of the cross this morning. I'm here to relieve you of duty. And I'm also here to say, stop insulting the Son. He said it's finished. And he paid to say that. Sometimes people talk about just the, the fact that they there's, there must be something I can do. Something I should do, something only I can do. And I'll explain the gospel and 
talk about this great free offer. Just repent and believe. They still can't quite get there, and they say, yeah, but I still think I need to probably clean this up. Or my, my church taught me that I need to continue to persevere and do this. You know, the Mona Lisa is maybe the most famous portrait in human history. Da Vinci did the work. It's a nameless uh, Italian woman from Florentine, Italy. It's an amazing work. It's not only the most famous portrait on the planet, it's also the most costly. It's currently valued at $1 billion. You coming to the great gospel that I've just explained, purchased at ultimate cost, gazing into it, and then saying, yeah, but there's just a little bit more I need to do, would be like you walking into the museum where the Mona Lisa is now hanging, taking a long, adoring, and interested look at that timeless face, and then pulling a Sharpie marker out of your pocket and walking up and just adding one little stroke. The Son of God paid to say, it is finished. Give it up. Come to Him. Here's the last. It simply also means you simply have to believe because it is truly finished, my friend. God asks nothing more of you than for you to see your sin for what it is and the Savior for who He is. Turn from your sin and seek your Savior. Place your faith in the work that Jesus finished on the cross. If you accept the truth that He died on the cross, that He rose from the dead the third day, that His shed blood will wash away your sins, according to my Bible in Romans chapter 10, you're saved. Let me me describe that. What does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Justified. Now we go back to where we began. Didn't I open with Romans chapter 4 that talked about the fact Abraham was justified and made perfect in God's sight by looking ahead to a lamb that would come for him. And you and I are justified by looking back now to Jesus and what he's done and saying, that's enough for me. And when you are, you are justified in the sight of God. And so that's why when Jesus said it is finished, he opened the doorway to eternity for you. Can you now see why these may have been? And in my opinion, they were the greatest words Jesus ever said. But you know something just as great? It's what the Father said. When he raised Jesus from the dead, on Resurrection Sunday, he connected the the resurrection to the crucifixion. Because the sacrifice was paid to the Father. Some people think that Jesus paid a ransom to the devil. That's heresy. It's completely untrue. Jesus paid a price 
to the Father who's perfect and just and who said, I need a perfect price for these imperfect people. And when Jesus paid it all and God raised him from the dead, the Father was saying, I accept. To Telestai. Paid in full. In my eyes. When Jesus rose from the dead... When the Father raised him, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins. I said it earlier, I'll just repeat it for you. That his work was completed and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. In fact, he was deserving to be exalted above every name, as as we heard, heard earlier. There was no penalty left to pay on Resurrection Day. No penalty left to pay for your sin or mine. No more wrath of God to bear. No more guilt or liability or punishment. All our sin had been completely paid for and no guilt remained. So in the resurrection, God the Father was saying to God the Son, you said it is finished and I approve. I approve of what you've done and you find favor in my sight. (laughs) And you know what? If you're in Him, you have favor in God's sight too. That's the greatness of this marvelous story. Don't miss it on a resurrection morning. If you're coming with your religion, leave that at the foot of the cross. But here's something else. If you're coming with your regrets today, and oh, we all have them, your regrets about your life, your history, your deeds, the secret things, the worst things. You can leave those at the foot of the cross too. Because there was a stripe on his back for every one of them. There was a taste of wrath for every deed. It was all paid for. So you leave that at the foot of the cross, too. And I simply want to ask you to trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior today. I think I've made it clearly understandable about how to do that.